You're listening to episode nine of the Inconvenience Podcast featuring Jessica Williams. Welcome to the Inconvenience Podcast. I'm Frank Beard. And I'm Al Aber, the Gas Station Gourmet. And I'm excited about this episode. We are talking with Jessica Williams. She's the founder of Food Forward Thinking and someone that Al and I have had the chance to meet over the last couple of years. Jessica is a definite expert in food service. She has an extensive background having worked for some of the biggest food service brands in the world and also was really instrumental in the food service program at Thornton's. Yeah, and I tell you what, I every time I talk to Jessica, I, I learn something new. So she's uh, definitely an authority in this business and uh, just a joy to talk to. Yeah, we had a great chat with her at the NAC show last year when we were uh, thinking about, well, actually, we had started working on this at the NAC show, hadn't we? Right, right. We already did our first two interviews there. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so yeah, we were talking with her and um, definitely wanted to bring her on the podcast at some point. And I thought... Why not do it now? She was in an article recently in CSP, which will be linked on the episode page, um, talking about emergency action plans and the importance of putting that together. And so I thought, why don't we start with that? But then I don't know about all of you, but I'm personally getting a little fatigued with coronavirus content right now. I have spent way too much time reading the news, getting on Twitter, and I thought, why don't we get into what retailers can do when this is all over, especially with their food service program? So Jessica really gets into a good conversation about a number of topics. Like if you're an independent operator and you you have grandma's fried chicken and it's selling really well at one store, you know, which is a surprisingly common thing. Hmm. How do you absolutely? How do you take that the next step? How do you make that into a scalable food service product? And what do you do? So she has some really great practical advice on this. I tell you what, Jessica is definitely the go-to person when it comes to this. Yeah, so I think this is actually a, a pretty long episode. We're just going to jump right into it, but I want to remind everyone um, on this episode page on Inconvenience Podcast, you can find Jessica's bio, links to a number of articles and resources that are mentioned in this episode, as well as timestamps that list just what topics we're discussing and when we change topics. So if you only got 30 minutes to listen, that's a great way to just find what you want to listen to and go straight to it. But um, don't forget, if you enjoy this, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, practically anywhere podcasts are found. And feel free to uh, drop a nice comment on there. We definitely appreciate that. And episode nine. Episode nine. I know we're almost at episode 10. Oh Let's, my God, that's a milestone. That's hard. That's hard to believe. This has gone by quickly. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast, Jessica. I, I actually want to get your thoughts on something here. Um, you were in an article recently about emergency action plans. And I don't know about you and Al, but my whole takeaway from this has been I don't think our systems were prepared for this kind of a stress test. And I don't, I don't mean just in retail, I mean in general. Like, I had to explain to some friends overseas recently what uh, deductibles and copays are. They did not know what that was. You know, not to get political here, but if you're going to have a global pandemic and 
what is it? Forty percent of Americans, you know, it said can't afford a five hundred dollar emergency. Your health care is tied to your employment, and then you have ten million unemployed people. It's probably not going to work too well as far as getting people tested and getting them in if they're sick. Um, that's a real that's a real concern. Um, but I just think in general, a lot of our systems weren't prepared for this kind of a stress test. Do you? Do you think uh, retailers were prepared with emergency action plans, or do you get the sense that they're really caught off guard by this as well? Uh, yeah, my sense is that everyone was caught off guard, uh, not just food service and convenience, obviously, but grocery stores, which have remained open, they weren't ready um, for anything like this, as far as I can tell. Um, some of them have acted more swiftly and decisively than others. And um, maybe those got their plans together faster than some others and, and are seen as leaders. But I don't think anybody walked into this with a, a plan ready to hatch already. No, I don't think so at all. Yeah, I know. I think we were all cut off guard. I mean, <clears throat> where I work, we didn't have a clue on how we were going to run our television station with nobody in the building. And we very quickly had to learn to do that. And uh, I mean, right now... I, I, I think this was off the cuff. This was certainly not in a plan. We now have stores down here in South Louisiana where they're only allowing 10 people in the store at one time. Are y'all experiencing that where you are? Yeah, I am. Uh, I've, I've seen, I've seen that as a, as a policy. I haven't experienced it myself, but even walking into a grocery store, um, carts are being wiped down. It's kind of single file. You have to wait for someone to move out of the way before you can go and get, the bread that you're looking for, or whatever it is, um, everyone that I'm in contact with uh, or around, not in contact at all with, <laughs> but yeah. uh, near um, in Kentucky, it seems to be everyone's taking um, taking it very seriously. The social distancing piece. Yeah, that's actually really good. It's I'm not gonna lie; I haven't been to a retail location in about three weeks. Um, yeah. It's kind of weird. I mean, I love walking in retail locations, and suddenly I'm just stuck at home all the time and not going anywhere. But it's um, I've seen how our grocery stores, though, um, I've seen photos that they're doing uh, single file, um, you know, kind of one way aisles. Now they're putting uh, you know stickers on the floor to have everyone going in a single direction. They're wiping the carts down. They've got face shields installed, which that kind of gets to your point about emergency action plans. I know one of the first types was having short-term plans in place. Um, I've actually seen some really cool ideas coming out of this. In a weird way, it's almost like this has convinced some retailers to go back to full-service gas as a way to make people feel safe and not having to get out and touch the pumps themselves. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's necessarily safer. You know, you don't know if it, someone's washing their hands, if they're handling your cart or anything, but at least the optics of it uh, are a little, little nicer. Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of an interesting move back to how things started, even with the, the logo that you have on your inconvenience podcast, full service <laughs> dude, he's uh, ready to serve. And I think that um, convenience in particular has stepped up to fill this role of being a safe place. Um, I'm watching uh, sort of a non-compete message being spread. Um, We're not in competition with each other. We're not trying to drive tons and tons of traffic to the store. Um, Sales plans and penalties for waste, things like that is just out the window. And I think that's a very positive approach to um, helping people just get through and being seen as a, a leader in the community for 
a safe place to go and sort of a refuge. If you need it, we've got it. We're not trying to bring people in by the boatload. We're actually trying to um, be efficient and um, yes, serve you from the door, serve you from, I've seen lock boxes as a or deposit, you know, drop boxes as a way for um, guests from the outside of the store to put money in and have their groceries kind of taken to them or whatever they need from the store as an option and um, opening doors uh, like where a, a team member and employees opening the doors constantly for the guests. So they don't have to touch the doors, cleaning the gas pumps every hour. I mean, you wouldn't have normally seen that. So I think, I think convenience is doing a great job overall of trying to be a safe place, take care of their employees and um, be there for guests overall. I think, I think they're doing one of the better jobs. I've really noticed that that too. It's there's something unique about convenience stores. Uh, you know, I like what you, mes- what you mentioned about the non compete message, because it seems to me that whenever a crisis hits, convenience stores are really the last retailer to close. Um, I, I mean, I had the chance a few years back when Hurricane Irma hit Florida. I spent uh, five days working out of their uh, uh, the state's uh, emergency command center, and so we were driving around when folks had evacuated and. The convenience stores almost had transformed into these little community centers where mm-hmm. people would come together just to gossip, get a few supplies, and it was like one of the few places that was really open. But what's been interesting to me, for me to watch is, all right, retail as a whole is going through an incredibly rough time right now. Um, and s- there are some companies that are not being particularly good actors at the present time. Like, I think we all saw the debacle with Hobby Lobby recently. I'm like, for a company that likes to talk a big game about values, they sure didn't seem to have many values when when it came to taking care of their employees during this crisis. Um, I know they closed all their stores yesterday. Yeah, finally. I couldn't bl- I was like, no one needs picture frames right now. They need to stay <laughs> home. But... Um, you know, but you look at convenience retailers and how are they responding? They're giving frontline employees raises. They're re- they're reiterating and providing clarification around paid time off policies or putting policies in place if they didn't have something. They're they're trying to help. I I mean, to the extent that they can. I think that's that's great, and it says a lot about uh, the industry that we all work in here. Oh yeah, I was at uh, the, a Shoprite store. <clears throat> excuse me, on Thursday, taking pictures for a NAC story I'm doing. And they've got the they've got a sign when you pull up in it says you know we'll pump your gas the uh, the 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 pumps are clearly marked where there's someone there to pump your gas and I mean they're wearing gloves and and you don't even have to get out of your car you know it's pretty cool and um, they also have the plexiglass shields and they're doing curbside takeout and it's 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 per- and liquor delivery through the Drizzly app well that's the important stuff. Exactly. Right now, we're all shut in. We need liquor. We don't want to go out and get it. Uh, but I, there, there was a story in Nax Daily, I think it was yesterday maybe I did, on, on the Drizzly app. I mean, you download the app, you order your liquor, you pay for it there, and then someone from ShopRite will deliver it to you. I mean, is that going to go away, uh, Jessica? I mean, when all this is over, how much of this stuff are we going to hang on to? I think we'll hang on to quite a bit of it. I think the flexibility to work from home, I hope, uh, for a lot of companies will, will remain in place. Delivery options um, as a as a brand new method to drive sales, I think everyone's going to want that to stay. Um, definitely alcohol delivery 
uh, <laughs> I think we're all hoping that stays too. But um, no, I think I think even just having a mindset toward um, how how do viruses spread? How how might I keep myself safe? How might I keep my guests safe? Um, if you didn't know the the correct way really to um, to wipe down a table or to clean the bathroom, keep the mop from the bathroom separate from the mop from the rest of the store. I mean, I think now we know that. Uh, I hope that knowledge doesn't disappear quickly, but I have a feeling if it's not already written into standard operating procedures, uh, that's where we're headed uh, most definitely as things start to turn around and become normalized again. I think you'll see lots and lots of precautions be- built into normal. Well, Frank, Jessica, you guys have a more global view than I have. I I just run into the gas stations and eat the food and then leave. So you all know all, all the stuff. But I'm wondering, I mean, we all know about um, Kent Couch in Bend, Oregon. He's got people pumping gas in uniform. It's really cool, really <laughs> unique. And, and, you know, he owns the market there. He sells more gas than anyone and he's more expensive. What I'm wondering, Jessica and Frank, when this is over, I wonder if we're going to see uh, the full service at the pump stay in place. I think it'd be cool to see it. I haven't seen it in my area. Are you seeing it where you are, Frank? I'm not seeing it a lot here, to be honest. I I think there's a missed opportunity for it um, because you already know for, um, you know, just compliance around the Americans, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act that you need to have the option you know, for someone to at minimum, you know, honk and come out and get someone to help them fill up. But I don't know why folks wouldn't at least put a sign out that's that reiterates this and says, hey, we will pump your gas for you if you want. Like, I don't know. This actually brings up an interesting point. Mm-hmm. I was having this conversation with someone where I said, I don't know if younger Americans know what full service means if you were to yeah. put up a sign that says full service available. So I was trying to think of what what sort of words could you use instead? Um I don't know. You'd probably just have to really spell out what that is and say, we will pump your gas for you if you honk twice or if you call this number. I'd probably tell him to call a number. I I don't know about you. I don't want to sit there and be the jerk that's honking my car when people are standing outside by it. It's kind of a loud horn. Um, But I don't know. I could see this playing out a few ways. I could see folks coming out of the situation and thinking, hmm, you know, working from home was great. Um... I wasn't just productive. I actually worked longer hours and was more productive than I normally would be. The problem was trying to convince myself to stop working because that's what happens when you work from home. Everyone finds out. Um, And I didn't have to dress myself in clothes that I'm not going to wear outside of an office. I wore sweatpants and a shirt and was productive. Why would I want to go back to an office after this? But then at the same time, there's some folks who could be like, I am dying to get out of my house now. I want to go to a restaurant. I want to see other people. I don't ever want to do that again. So I could see this going either way for for some folks. But I don't, you know, to your point about delivery, though, something that's interesting, and I'll link to this article in our podcast page, uh, 2 p.m., by the way, is like one of the absolute best mailing lists that I'm on. And they had an article that was digging into how what happened with SARS in 2003, that was sort of the the push to make uh, Alibaba go digital um, and make that company go digital because they they realized that when suddenly um, you couldn't rely on physical retail and physical meetings and and that to drive revenue anymore because there's an outbreak and people don't want to be around each other, 
that opened you up to a tremendous amount of risk. Like you weren't prepared to weather that storm if you didn't have an e-commerce channel to drive sales. And I think we are seeing with some retailers right now, that's a problem. So the ones that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe had experimented with delivery. um, I mean, folks like Anthony Perini, who was on our podcast before, he's been doing delivery for years. Um, Folks know that they can access Lou Perini's without going to Lou Perini's. That's a huge help in a time like this. Right. Yeah. I I don't think that um, you'll see people go for delivery necessarily because it's safer um, or have people pump your gas for you because it's safer. But I think if it becomes a more efficient way to live your life, people will bring that into their lives as a, as a new standard. So like, for example, uh, you mentioned being at the gas pump and um, yeah, when I lived in Dubai for a year and um, there, the standard procedure when you go to get gas, you don't get out of your car. You actually don't even turn the car off. I always had to turn it off because I thought that felt so strange for people to pump my gas with the, the car running. But um, it felt so strange to be waited on um, in, the, in that kind of way. Like this is a thing that I do by myself. I, I don't need help with it. I know what to do. Um, so that to me was a service that um, just always felt strange, even after 12 months of that. Um, but what wouldn't feel strange is calling in an order, you know, and, and just knowing like, you know, I would have gone, I would have had to pump my gas and then walk in to grab my Coke or Red Bull and Snickers or whatever it is you're in, that you were going to go in there for. But if that could be done for me and brought out to me and I could go ahead and pay for it. I would definitely keep that as part of my standard. Not want- again, not for safety, but but for convenience and efficiency. See, I wonder if customers would pay a little more for gas to have someone else pump it so they could stay on their phone and work. How Don't much? Don't they do how that much? anyway? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you, you got to get out of the car. You got to, you know, put your credit card. I mean, you're, you're going to have at least a. 60 seconds where you got to be a paying attention, you know, and I don't trust the pumps all the time to shut off. I've Have you ever seen a gas pump and it's got the automatic shut off, but it doesn't shut off and gas pours out of the tank. I've seen that yeah. so many times at stations. I've because, seen that. Yeah, yeah. Because there's something yeah. wrong. So well, I kind of stand by it. Where they don't even let you, um, don't even have the option on the, the, the fuel mechanisms, not even there. You have to hold it or you don't get gas. You don't get so I wonder if if post pandemic or, or gas station owners are going to go, wait a minute, you know, our customers really like the full service thing. Let's try it. Let's, you know, uh, increase the price a little bit to cover our, ex- our, our extra costs. Maybe. Yeah. And I don't know. I think they'll increase the, the cost the other places possibly, but not necessarily at for the, the fuel itself, you know, by the gallon. But um, yeah, totally agree with you on calling ahead ordering ahead, online ordering, delivery. I don't think that goes away at all. Yeah, I think it stays. I think, and a lot of stations were doing that already. I know up in the East Coast and in, in the Northeast where it gets really cold. I've talked to some owners up there who when everything's frozen, they've been delivering for years to older people, people who don't want to get out of the house and drive through the ice and snow. So it's been a thing. It's been a winter thing uh, in the Northeast, New Hampshire, uh, Maine, places like that. So yeah, I think... I haven't seen a lot of delivery down here in Louisiana, but now everyone's delivering. Everybody's got curbside, and even the breweries here have curbside. You know, one of the things I would really like to see, um, I don't know if you all have seen, um, it's a system called Fuel Call. It's from a company called uh, uh, Inclusion Solutions, and um, 
virtually every Hy-Vee gas station up here has them, and they're just awesome. It's this little this little button basically that sits next to the pumps. Um, it's on kind of like its own metal arm and anchored to the ground. But it, they just put a sign that says like, if you're disabled, if you need assistance, if you're if you're pregnant, like what what whatever reason that you don't want to get out of the car and pump your own gas, press this button. And someone will come out and assist you. But that's such wow. a better idea than telling someone to honk their horn a few times because no one wants to do that. That's awkward. God forbid you're at a place like Bucky's where they're not even going to hear you honk the horn because it's so big. <laughs> um, but that's a real problem. I mean, we have some really big stores in this industry. And there's some stores where you wouldn't hear someone honking the horn or you might miss it. I mean, or you're busy and you just don't notice it. So this that's is a really it. non-confrontational way to just get someone's attention. And you don't have to put it at every pump. You can put it at half, a fourth, an eighth, whatever, as long as you have that option there. But I could see that working where if you if you put the right signage on it, you could say, if you don't want to pump your own gas for any reason, let us know. And, um, you know, make them feel comfortable doing that. Because I don't know if it's about everyone needs to be full service or everyone doesn't need it, but you may have a certain percentage of customers that actually want that and might come back just because you offer it. Yeah, I think it's nice that you could be uh, a little bit discreet and not necessarily draw a ton of attention to yourself. If you need help for any of those reasons, you don't necessarily want the whole lot looking at you and noticing why you need help and trying to figure out why you need help. You can do it more discreetly. I think that makes perfect sense. I love it. And, you know, and, and checking in, um, whether it's through an app or through calling into the store. Um, I use ClickList. Uh, well, I don't now because it's not available for many, many days ahead, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, through Kroger. But uh, I, I found it awesome to be able to, to drive up and you, you make a quick call and they say, oh, is that you in, in spot number one? Yes. You know, so um, it's, it's convenient. It's quick. It's efficient. Uh, but it's discreet as well. <laughs> it would be so strange to pull up and honk your horn, have everybody yeah. look at you. Yeah, and that actually brings up something too. It's interesting. I so I wrote an article for Nax Magazine recently. I think it should be out in a few months about um, just what's going on with mobile payments because it's you know it's funny. You keep hearing mobile payments are they're always on the horizon. It's always coming, and yet not really. Um, people still want to pay with cash or swipe a piece of plastic. Um, I have to wonder though if this could help tip the balance a little bit. Um, people may not want to handle cash. They may not want to touch a card reader. Um, if you can at minimum just tap and go with some of the newer uh, cards that are coming out from the credit card companies, or you know, to your point, if you could use an app like that, if you could turn on a pump with it, if you could just not have to touch anything, I could, I could see that being really compelling. Because I'm like, all right, if you could pull into a C-store right now and turn on the pump with a app and then have a person at the store pump it for you, you wouldn't have to touch or do anything that that make you feel kind of safe with the whole coronavirus mess. At least, at least I think so, but be yeah, interesting I, to see where that goes. I think it, if there are ways to keep uh, staff and employees protected, that's where I think you'll see the investment because it has to come from the company itself to invest in that kind of technology. So if it's keeping their employees safer um, in addition to the guests, I think that's, um, that would be the incentive for for a company to invest in that kind of technology. So, Definitely okay. to protect the guests, but but more importantly, I mean, they'll all say we take care of our employees first, and you have to. I think, mm -hmm. um, yeah, if you see a payoff from that, you see you're able to um, to in, 
attract more people or keep them longer. Those for those sorts of HR sort of reasons, I think you might see an investment in technology like that. So, and that actually gets us back into emergency action plans. I want to dive into that real quick because um, I have to think of how I would say this, but I feel like your HR policies as a company, um, your employee policies have kind of become public health concerns at this point. Some retailers have done a great job. They've immediately announced, here's what we're doing to protect our employees, because if they're protected, then, you know, customers are protected too. Here's how we support them with uh, sick policies. We're giving everyone a raise because they're, you know, they're working extra hours, you know, things are dangerous. Um, some folks have done a really great job with that. The ones who haven't though, I don't feel very safe going to their stores if I can't trust that someone can stay home if they're sick. I mean, I've worked in restaurants. I, I know how many people in certain roles come to work sick and it's, it's sad, but, um, you know, what kind of things should companies, keep in mind, um, you know, when they put an emergency or let's just start, how do you put an emergency action plan together? Because it sounds like a lot of folks really haven't done that. Oh yeah. Um, I've been reading quite a bit about that and listening to the webinars that I can get on, um, about where, uh, leading companies are, are willing to share. And by the way, I think that's really, um, interesting that just this fraternity and kind of brotherhood that convenience has always had, um, here it shows up again. I've always seen it in food service and it keeps blowing my mind um, coming from the restaurant world where no one shares anything at all. Even if you're under the same umbrella of uh, a parent company, you can't share, but in convenience, people are sharing. Um, they always have, which I think makes convenience a very strong player overall. And here they are sharing and just the details um, because it, um, you know, raising the bar for, for one brand raises it for everyone. And so some of the things that I'm seeing that I think are awesome, um, it kind of goes by this model. I've noticed everybody's doing this. They're saying we have to protect our employees first. We have to protect their pay. We have to protect their health. Um, but first and foremost, communicating with our employees. Um, second, communicating to our guests, people who shop here. Um, the same it may be the same things. It may be the same information or it might be just new information and, and showing that we are a safe place. Um, and a lot, there are many different ways to do that. I mean, you mentioned for the employees, increasing their pay, um, bumping their bonus up to a, a, as soon as possible, rather than making them wait, dropping um, any kind of bonus structure goals that would have been in place under normal circumstances. If those are just gone, you can count on getting that money. You're going to keep working. But to your point about making sure you have time off if you need it, um, some some best in class examples I've seen are, you know, 14 days, no question. You stay home. You have a sniffle. We don't ask. You just stay home, okay? And if you find out that you actually have the coronavirus, you you have to let us know so that we can deep clean our stores and clothes and, and that kind of thing. But um, no questions asked time off and no question that you're going to get paid. That's super important right now. Um, telemedicine uh, involving um, healthcare and access to people who may not be on the, the insurance plan that the company offers, just blanket. Everybody is, a, is a accessing telehealth, able to contact a doctor, for free. I think that's super and, and just awesome. If you imagine having a family, you didn't have insurance and now suddenly you're able to talk to a doctor and, and get through 
maybe not Corona, maybe it's just strep, maybe it's just regular flu. It could be anything. So you, you now have access to that. It's very valuable. And I think that shows you're taking care of your employees and then um, store hours being limited. Um, just simple signs. We deep clean our stores every night. Oh, I've been seeing, um, you know, first hour is available to people with immunocompromised situations um, to elderly. So the store is open maybe from the, f- the first hour or two is not available to the whole public, but only to specific people. So we, they can count on going into a really clean environment. How, how important is that if you're, if you're shopping? And especially if you, you, no one's buying this stuff for you or you need to go out on your own. I think that's a great um, message we, that shows clearly we really are thinking through this through and we're really caring about our staff and our guests. Those are two really big, um, I think, really apparent examples of caring. So the pay and then also just the the signage communicating. Yeah, that makes such a big difference when when folks who are elderly or do have a compromised system, if they can go in and shop early, because we all know what happens during crises. People will line up for like an hour before a store opens uh, Mm -hmm. to get stuff that's that's still going to be there. if They would have shown up normally, Um, but it gets crazy. And it's like, um, you know, it's good to have that that extra hour where where folks who can't deal with that can actually just shop in peace and get what they need and go home. yeah, it's pan- panic binds always bizarre. It's like when hurricanes happen, you'll you'll have people who just accelerate the demand really quickly. It's not that there is actually a shortage. It's just that you don't you know, they kind of they'll empty out the tanks at the gas stations before the trucks can come back even though the supply chain is intact. But what that do- you know, then it creates this perception for everyone else that there's fuel shortages, so they panic. And they go buy it. And then pretty soon you've just got this gigantic mess when there was no need for it in the first place. And um, yeah, what a bizarre time. So with 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 emergency action plans, do companies need to actually produce a formalized document? Is that something that you would encourage or do they just yeah. need to like talk this through? No, I think regularly? I think a, a formal checklist is key. Um, giving giving a, these are just these are just regular people. You know, these are people that happen to have a job that doesn't stop um, when many, many jobs do stop. So giving them every tool possible. I've, I've seen uh, Strass Global. They have um, produced an awesome checklist that's specific to their stores, but um, could, could be a great starting template for anybody um, using, you know, a, cut and paste into, into your own format, your own, um, your, your own website, whatever it is that you want to send people to the portal that you're sending your, your guests or team members to, or your guests, um, a checklist. Yeah. Going down, um, the list. These are the ways we're protecting you. These are the ways we're protecting our guests. These are the ways we're maintaining our operations. Um, having a very set standard across every store. Um, not only that, but just deep cleaning measures. Um, it's a great time if you haven't already to take a, a strong, hard look at how do you, how do you tell your team to clean a soft serve machine? For example, those things are such a pain to clean when you have to pull out um, about 25 or 50 different parts to clean them all and then put them back together. Um, is that something that that your team uh, struggled with before? Because if it is, now's a great time to make it real simple. 
do it one good time, <laughs> close it down. Um, you know, those are some just just standard operating checklists that you probably had out there anyway, but beefing them up and, and re-hitting them. And not just once a week, but every single day. Um, I mean, what other resource do, do most people have? You have to look to your government, um, our, our state governor in Kentucky, he gets on uh, through the weekday, every day at five o'clock. And um, it's so funny. Who would have guessed that um, friends and colleagues and family would kind of drop everything and turn on the radio or watch TV to watch our wow. governor and what he might have to say, even though um, it's not necessarily good news. It's, it's a new set of businesses closing all the time. But so there's, there's one place that, you know, your team is seeing um, action and seeing directives and they want to know, well, exactly what does that mean for me and my business that I'm running today? So constant communication is, is important. I think folks during these kinds of situations just really crave leadership. And that's an interesting point that you're like, he's saying the same thing, but people still want to tune in and, and hear that. I, yeah. I think a lot of companies make a mistake when they don't have regular communication. Our company at Gas Buddy, we have literally a daily 15 minute Zoom call. That's just an update of what's going on. Yeah. Also, yeah. I think we're, uh, an emergency action plan comes in because I've been involved with a company that, um, I think they were so uh, focused on uh, implementing new technology, reallocating resources, uh, kind of, I don't want to say panicky, but just, you know, uh, really fast moving, uh, really, really quick that they, did, they didn't communicate effectively all the time. And so sometimes people were out there in the dark and especially with people working from home. Man, that's, oh God, that's so key. Yeah. And actually, um, you mentioned something that <laughs> around cleaning the soda machines. Um, I always think back to, there's a news outlet, I think it's in Tampa, Florida. Man, they do the most brutal investigations of food, just food service safety violations. I mean, they are methodical. I was reading an article at one point, they'd found a, some sort of dollar store where I think rats had had chewed through uh, some yeah. bags of rice. And I mean, these oh. these folks, if you don't have your game together, God, one of their reporters is going to wander into your store and you're going to be on their list. Like, they do not play around. But it it's funny because I follow this stuff and it you always see people getting caught for really simple stuff that any any waiter in any restaurant would know how to fix. You know, things like uh, they the soda machines will have gunk all over them. Well, I mean, when I worked in a restaurant, we would always disassemble that at night and soak that, soak that in hot water, soak it in soda water, sterilize it uh, halfway regularly. Point is, our soda machines never had problems like that. But if you don't have like basic food service training, basic food safety training, you're going to make those mistakes. And this is a real problem, I think, as convenience retailers are moving in the direction of food service. And obviously, there's some restrictions around that now. But when this is all said and done, I'm sure that's a direction people are going to con continue to go in. So I think that'd be a good point to pivot here, because you you have a really long background in food service. Um, I think I think it'd be interesting to get into that. How, how did you make the transition into convenience retail? Yeah, uh, so my background is I graduated from University of Kentucky with a degree in food science. And um, what I always wanted to do was come up with new products. I remember learning that there's a person or a team that comes up with brand new ideas 
um, different flavors of even like Campbell's soup, I think came to speak to us and different um, juices and Coca-Cola. How do you come up with these different flavors? What is that an actual job where you get to taste food all the time? Um, and I was lucky enough to land a job at Yum Brands right out of college. So I worked for Yum, uh, which has KFC, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. And um, for a while, when I was there, they had A&W and Long John Silver's as well. So under one roof, I was able to see five different brands and how they operate um, and uh, actually work on products from start to finish. So I started out doing equipment and seasoning validations. So like if a seasoning supplier was opening a plant in Egypt, because I worked for the International Division of KFC, um, we were testing the product manufactured in Egypt with taste testers. And um, kind of like if you like a, it's so interesting to watch. If you, if you taste wine, imagine tasting wine and you're like swirling it in the glass and you smell it. And then you talk about what happens at the front end and then the back end of, of this taste. Companies are doing this with all types of food, with chicken, fried chicken, with mashed potatoes, with bread, with sauces of every kind and every kind of drink. Um, so uh, that was fascinating and, and really cool to be a part of early on. Um, I worked internationally with that brand, got to travel quite a bit. Um, I think I mentioned that I lived in the Middle East for a year and um, got to see how the brand operates across the world. And it's quite different from here, or um, at least it was back then. I think some things are changing in a positive way here in the United States now. Um, so that was for 10 years of my life working for KFC and Yum Brands. Then, um, short story is had a baby, learned about this company called Thornton's, um, also based in Louisville, Kentucky, where I was living, and um, had the opportunity to come over and do product development, which they didn't have as a position before I started. So I came with this big brand knowledge of process and structure and jumped over into convenience. I remember being introduced by Matt Thornton, who was the CEO at that time, to a group of people. And he said, hey, this is Jessica. She used to do product development at Yum, where they would take 18 months or two years to get something done. Um, she's going to do it here in six weeks, right? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, definitely. That's what I'm doing. Yes, six weeks. I hear you loud and clear. Um, so it was, um, it was great to be able to to move some of the process and structure and some of the great things about uh, what a big brand does over to convenience, which is so much faster. Um, at least, you know, in the brand that I worked for had less than 200 stores, which is significant, but not the same as 5,000. And um, when you test, you can test and, and not have a ton of risk or just not test and just go. Um, so much freedom to move in and out of products, to try things out, to work directly with operations, no silos. Um, I just loved my, um, my work there. Uh, still love the team. And then another long story short, um, my husband and I made a huge move. Um, everyone, most people thought we were completely crazy. We left our great jobs and our upward trajectories <laughs> in the corporate world and uh, moved to our small hometown about two hours from Louisville in central Kentucky. Um, we now live on a dairy farm that's organic and my husband practices law. I started this new 
business. Um, I called it food forward thinking. And essentially I take a lot of different projects um, as an outsource for companies that don't uh, necessarily want to do those projects. So they just don't have the headspace or the time for it. Um, So my big first move into my uh, business the first set of big projects that I had were menu labeling. So very tedious, very boring, um, must have it. There's a law that in, that came into effect the same year that I started my business. So pretty handy for me. But um, I was able to help several different chains get compliant with this menu labeling law. And um, it turns out it wasn't just for convenience, but also grocery chains and restaurants had the same sort of compliance that they had to meet. So um, it's been great to move into a consulting role and sort of be on many different teams. It's totally different, um, but tons of freedom. And and I really enjoy it. I really enjoy being able to take what I knew about restaurants, move it over to convenience, and then expand that further into grocery. So I, I find this interesting because I've, I mean, anyone who listens to this knows I've been a huge proponent for a while of retailers. Um prioritizing hiring people that have a food service background because when they don't you just see very simple mistakes being made i mean i know we've talked about this before but uh folks not folks spending a lot of money on indoor seating and then not wiping their tables down or having any policy around that i i I still can't get over that that makes no sense to me i i mean like give me a spray bottle it'll take me five seconds i'll i'll do this for you when i come in but um what what sort of failure uh, sorry, we have some geese flying by. They, the ge- you know, with this whole point, if I were saying the geese are taking over, they are have they? reclaimed all the parking lots around here. They are, they are, they are brutal and vicious. But anyway, uh, to get back to this, what, what, what sort of failure modes do you most commonly observe in food service? Like, what are, what are just like the really obvious mistakes that that you're seeing retailers make that they may not even be aware are problems? Okay, the first one I can think of is um, I see. I see this theme. Um, you can't assume as a corporate entity that everyone is uh, is on board with your plan to do food, especially if they didn't join and you had food and now they suddenly do. Um, so many operators would have joined a food brand if that's what they wanted to work on. And that's what they wanted to touch and think about. And they didn't. They joined the, uh, you know, a, a convenience store or a gas station because it didn't have those things. And now you're bringing them in and, and hoping that they're all excited about it. And they may really just not be excited about it um, because it's so hard. It's so hard. Um, it's hard to have someone transition from a non-food role into a food role. So um, having uh, the staff in place who actually like food, not only like food, but handle food safely and um, just have a hospitality sort of feel to their, to their work. You can't teach someone how to be hospitable. You can't teach someone how to be friendly and you can't really teach someone um, a certain amount of, you know, basic hygiene if they don't come in with it. So uh, yeah, I think those you're looking for food service workers. I'm trying to word this so carefully, but yeah. If you if you don't know to take your apron off when you go to the bathroom, you you don't need to work here. <laughs> oh, good point. You know, I hear so many people because I always ask people, uh, <clears throat> "What's your what's your employee strategy?" And with these small individually owned stores, I hear this line so much: "We try to hire the right people." 
And I know sometimes some people in some environments, I, I think some people just hire, you know, whatever they can get. But I think that, I mean, you just articulated that you, you just got to hire the right people at the beginning. Otherwise yeah. you don't know what's going to happen. Well, I've seen, um, I've just as a, as a guest on email, uh, came through from a brand where they're hiring um, team members, not to work the registers, but just to come in at this moment and clean and deep clean um, just to stock shelves, not to talk to people not to handle, you know, anything un, uh, unsafe or where you have to have a ton of training, um, but just hiring people just to come in and do cleaning. Now, if that's a whole new job position, uh, yes, it's temporary, but I have a great, feeling that if a company is considering that kind of um, level of service and staffing and willing to pay for that and willing to train for that, that's not going to go away. So my hope is that um, those sorts of measures stay in place. Um, I think it's, if there's a silver lining at all, it's that uh, non-food people now know how viruses spread. <laughs> uh, it's not just up to the food safety or food safety police in your organization to come in and coach cleaning. It's happening from, from every level. Um, as far as the food service kind of culture that, that you were asking about or, you know, trying to get, get at, I think from the top down, um, if I'm trying to work with an organization and, and their CFO, their CMO, no one is interested in, in um, becoming serve safe certified. I'm going to have a really hard, conversation with them when it comes to um, the demands I'm about to make on setting up my kitchen and the training that I'm asking you to invest in. Um, I think you can't possibly know unless you just let your yourself get into it. If it's not a role that you've typically had before working in food, it feels like a foreign language. Um, I think that's part of the teaching is yes, definitely at your own store level, um, understanding from the top down, this is how we mop. This is how we wipe. This is what we mean when we say clean. It looks like this. It's this frequency. Here's how we sign off on it. Um, those are important measures to take at store level. And then just having the headspace to, to understand this is how restaurants operate. We're semi-restaurant. We're sort of a restaurant. Or we, we're, we're, if you're moving into food service for the first time, you're becoming your, yourself a restaurant at some level. So just showing interest in um, how to do it right. I mean, obviously, like culinary courses, that would be fun. But I think you have to do some basic things as far as keeping keeping it safe. And I think that's on everyone's radar at this point, which is one of the good things. Do you think sometimes the execution of food service is held back? Because, all right, let's say, let's say one of the leaders in the company is, all right, we're going to be a restaurant. We're going to go the food service route. But then as far as the execution goes, you devolve into a bit of a power struggle between different departments within, within the brand, you know, like maybe someone thinks it's going to be at the expense of, of their category or someone doesn't want to, you know, give, give ground on a budget. Do you, do you see some of that, that power struggle a little bit where people are maybe hesitant to, to embrace it because it kind of threatens their own position? Um, I think when it comes to specific foods and specific, um, more in, labor-intensive products, yes. I don't necessarily think with, um, with sanit sanitation and food service, um, tr like safety training, I haven't seen a whole lot of pushback on that. If anything, um, it's been a subject where so many people at, at um, higher levels are unaware of. 
the detail of it that they almost give ground right away and just kind of put their hands up and say, okay, okay, whatever it is that you need, yes, we'll do it. Um, I think now with so much more known about it, you're hopefully going to see less pushback on that if you ever did before. And again, I, I didn't necessarily ever see it. I haven't seen it so much with um, as pushback or like we don't have enough money in the budget to do that sort of training. And um, I think is it's, I always considered myself in a food role as sort of holding hands between operations and marketing. Um, <laughs> I literally imagine this and I, I've like taught this before, but um, marketing wants to do a thing. Operations doesn't want to change anything typically. Um, and, and that's not always the case, but um, the food service role being sort of a new role in the industry has the opportunity to help the two sides come together and mediate a bit um, and see, see from both perspectives. Obviously we want massive sales. We want awesome new items for you to photograph and talk about um, market. We want to support marketing. Um, we also don't want to cause a ton of friction, cause a bunch of disturbance out there, um, train a new product every day or every month or every quarter and have so much turnover. We're constantly reteaching this operation is the same I think it with a food position, even at the table um, with the rest of the C-suite, um, just kind of standing up and saying, this is, this is uh, an important part of our company now. And we have to all be on the same page. Um, food service has a unique opportunity, I think, to help voice those concerns, the, the concerns of the operators. And man, I think at this kind of critical stage in this pandemic, it's so easy now to see the voice of the operator. They are the front lines. We talk about healthcare workers. We talk about um, gas station attendants. These are, these are the front lines. They really are. So um, again, hoping that that doesn't go away, but that's, I think that's what we've all um, been striving for in the food service section of a company is to kind of help bring those two sides together and give voice to both. And um I think it'll do nothing but get stronger from this from this crisis. So I'm I'm curious for your thoughts on something too because when a retailer gets into into food service, I mean, there's just so many ways that you can go with that. There's so many great options and ideas, and I would imagine you'd get into some decision fatigue, um, or you run the route where you're selling everything, and it, some of it may not be profitable. Um, have a gigantic menu, and some of it's not su- successful. How? How would how do you advise retailers to make some hard decisions around what their menu should consist of and maybe what's going to drive the best margins for them? Mm, that's such a tricky question and it's such a political question. You might not think so in the beginning, but everybody has opinions on how food tastes and what ought to be in the store. Um, if you're coming from a place where you had a, a, a total menu in place, complete, and you've just now taken it down because of this crisis or to, to conserve um, your staff to keep people safe for whatever reason, if you've been in food and now you're mostly out of food, um, how do you come back? I think is a big question. And then if you weren't in it, how do you get into it? I feel like um, they both have similar answers though. Uh, as a starting place, where, what time of day is your heavy traffic? Um, so if you have lots of customers coming in for coffee already, um, they're filling up their tanks on the way to work. Maybe breakfast is a good place to start. Maybe you don't need to worry about your slowest times of the day. 
um, but you're just trying to capture the people who are in the store, not just number of transactions, including at the pump, but actually in the store. So um, what will drive, what will support the habits that they already have? And maybe your um, strongest hour is at lunch uh, or, or toward the end of the day when people are headed home, maybe, um, you know, I would advise considering if you're, if you're on the side of the road where people are mostly headed home and um, most of your customers are coming in for one quick thing or um, getting gas and leaving, maybe, maybe you have a better option for dinner, maybe um, like a sort of catering take and bake pizza program is not catering, but, but what I mean is um, putting all the options out there so that a family doesn't have to think very hard about what dinner looks like tonight. Um, But I definitely wouldn't propose a situation like that for somebody who is just a heavy breakfast, you know? So Mm -hmm. even within one brand, you might see different executions out there as far as stepping into food for the first time or back into it. And I've really been thinking if I were in charge of a category right now, like food that's been off and then is coming back, now is a great time to eliminate all the losers, <laughs> you know, that you, that you knew you had out there that you were hesitant to pull because there was a guy who always asks for it, or there was somebody in your organization who just thinks it's wonderful and it's actually not and margins are low. Um, now is your chance to start off in a, a much better place when you come back. So I'm most excited for those um, people who've been holding on to those menu items that they just hate and they're ready to let go of them. Um, don't bring them back. You know, have yes. the courage. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. I I can definitely think of a few I won't name that I would like to see go go away and maybe replace with something new and exciting. Which that also brings up a question I'm, I'm curious for for your thoughts on. And so, like Al, I know you write all the time about these single store operators, maybe two or three stores, folks that are selling grandma's recipe and it just kills it at a single location does so well, but all right, maybe they want to continue expanding their, their brand and opening up a couple stores. So now you're faced with the question of how do you scale something that was basically home cooked at a couple sites? You know, how do you turn that into more of a commercial a food service product where you can count on some reliable margins and, you know, really make some money off of this. Um, so Jessica, I, I know you've done work on that. What, how does someone go from, from the home cooked recipe to an actual competitive food service product? How do they scale something like that? Yeah. Um, great question. And, um, I've seen, I've seen people try to do it in different ways. Here's where I would start. Um, I would start by considering if you're, Uh, one location is um, appropriate to kind of make itself into a a small scale commissary and consider yourself now in the commissary business Um, as a first step. If you want to protect the whole process and you want it done yourself and you want to be able to see it, the best way to do that is right where you're doing it. Maybe it means expanding so that you have a bigger freezer capacity or refrigeration capacity. Um, Maybe you're hiring somebody that specifically has experience on a food line production wise, you know, to, to do this sort of work for you. Um, but I think you have to consider yourself now in the commissary business if you're doing that sort of thing, which is a totally different mindset from just cooking in a single location, um, especially now if you're delivering. So you got to think through how will I get my product over to my other location? Um, is it going to be in the trunk of my car? Is that safe? 
uh, and how are we going to package this up? How are we going to date it um, for expiration times, for safe storage, for first in, first out? So the same way that you um, expect all your other products to come into the store with these sort of guidelines on them. You wouldn't expect to get a case of cheese that didn't have all this information on it. How are you going to deliver now your new uh, product that didn't used to be here? Now it's here. You're basically entering it into the supply chain. So how are you going to track that? Um, So one way would be starting, that would be like a small way. Um, If you don't have enough space or don't have the commitment, uh, or capital to do something like that. There are commercial kitchens that are USDA inspected out there available for rent. So you could have um, access to a USDA inspector, to um, awesome equipment. You can bring in your own blender, whatever it is that you need to do to, to pull your product off, but do it in a audited, clean facility, um, especially if you feel like it's a test or you're not really sure if you want to invest yet, that might be a good way to get it started. Um, you know, if it depends on what kind of product it is. So like if it's a, it's a sauce or jelly or jam or, you know, something that's, um, pretty standard as far as there may be similar products like it out there. Um, I mean, I've had success working with really large scale, you know, production companies because they have pilot plants that can run smaller, um, smaller amounts for you. So maybe you don't need 50,000 pounds, maybe you need 2000 pounds, um, to get yourself started. Uh, definitely worth talking to the huge players. Um, the, the brands that, you know, you know, looking into it, finding a sales contact through your distributor, um, and just getting in, in touch with them. They don't mind to talk to you. And, um, they have so many ideas coming at them and so many NDAs that they have to sign. They're not worried. You shouldn't worry about, um, Oh, they're going to take my product now and my idea. And, and steal it and copy it. Um, with those big companies, you're not going to be worried about that. Um, on the other hand, if you if you know already that you'd rather work with a local a friend that you have or um, someone who runs a, a commis or, or like a production plant close by, and it's more of a boutique, uh, maybe that's a better fit for you. But um, I would say in any case, you feel like you have a good idea. Um, yeah, your shoppers love it. They're looking for innovation. Um, you mentioned Lou Perini, and I, I have not been to that store. I would love to. Um, <laughs> if I ever get up there, I'm definitely having a ho-ho cake and one of every flavor available. But um, how interesting, you know, if that, if that item were to scale up, what, what would it look like? Um, not to sacrifice anything about quality. Uh, there's something special about the, maybe it's the love is the secret ingredient. I don't know, but you want to take care of it most definitely, but there are definitely ways to scale up and uh, have a commercialized product in a safe package. That's the same product. Um, there are people with degrees working on making it work exactly the same for you without changing your ingredients or not changing them too much, um, but keeping intact your idea. Yeah. See, I, I like that idea of um, turning your store into a commissary because in a way it's with so with so many of these destination products that these single store operators have, it kind of is like um, they're just pouring their heart and their soul in, into this food. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 a very personal thing. You know, um, Al, you wrote a story about someone who massages the fried chicken. I couldn't believe that. Wow. What was what was the reason for that? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, what she does, essentially, she would, uh, she would wash each individual piece of chicken and then rub it, you know, uh, because she felt like, one, uh, she said, I can taste chicken that has not been washed. You can have uh, 10 gallons of gumbo. If someone didn't wash that chicken, this woman would know it was not washed. And massage it, of course, to tenderize it. And then along the same uh, thing in the massage, when uh, this guy was selling 100 pounds of chicken salad a day, he would take each piece of boiled chicken, instead of cutting up, he would do massage it between his fingers to break it apart. And he taught his employees to do that. And the way he kept his consistency is he would taste it. But when he sold the store to a big company, it, it uh, customers told me it tasted different. You know, so be, if you have one person who knows how it's supposed to taste and that person disappears, that product's going to change. And there's got to be a better system than a taster. You know, um, but yeah, you know, massage your chickens. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm so glad I didn't have to do that that one step for ten years. With well, just there FYI, if they're, if they're still alive, it's going to be a challenge. So I would <laughs> oh, massage God. them. I would massage the boneless, skinless ones first. Start there, and then work your way up to the live ones. Well, but that's a real concern. I, I, I mean, like the the, the marketing side of me is, is is thinking like, all right, the fact that a, the fact that someone does that. That's part of the story of this food. Like that's part of what makes it special and unique. That's that's why it's different from, you know, the major QSRs down the road that are selling fried chicken as well. Like you go there because this is a family recipe. They massage the chicken. They do crazy stuff. And that's part of the brand story. But you're right. Like and when that's you start exactly what she told me. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, she told me. She said, the reason we're selling so many chicken tenders, the reason we're running out of our dipping sauce every single day, it's simply because I'm washing and massaging these chickens. Hmm. She was was convinced of it. But if that works and you have an interest in growth, you're going to reach a point where you just can't massage all the chicken anymore. You'll have to hire staff. You'll have to get massagers in. But that's an interesting idea. Turning poultry massage. There's a whole new job market. Turning one of your original stores into a commissary, because in a way, you could still market that and tell that brand story. Um, just say we just massage a lot more chickens here now. But <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> well, you know, Frank, you've had the the boudin balls from um, Bourbon Street Deli, and that's exactly how they do it. They have a commissary in Rain, Louisiana at one of their big stores, and there's a young guy there named Trey who, uh, that boudin is his grandfather's recipe, and this guy very lovingly recreates this boudin all the time. They package it, and they send it out to all the shop rights throughout Louisiana. So, yeah, that's that's I got to interrupt a great you for a second, though, because I meant to ask you this. I noticed this when uh, uh, Angel was on our podcast. Both of you don't say boudin with a hard N at the end. No, it's Dan. <laughs> Like you know, we but we don't we don't correct you because we're Cajuns. We, we 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 you you you're endeared to us because you it mispronounce it. We love that. <laughs> well, we have uh, Boudin up here in in Iowa now. That was very close, Boudin. Yeah, Boudin. It's an eh. You know, Boudin. <laughs> I, I don't know if what we sell up here is technically correct, but it's uh, it's, it's probably yeah, commercialized and lost all its love. We don't have yeah. the time to put the hard in on the end of Boudin. You know, we can't say boudin because we're just in too much of a hurry. It's boudin. Let's get out of here. Well, speaking of commercialized food, uh, on our 2018 Axe road trip, I took Al into a store that had Cajun cheese curds. And these were sold, I think, in oh. Arizona or New Mexico. An abomination. <laughs> it, it, 
all right, like I'm close to Wisconsin. I've had plenty of cheese curds. Uh, we actually make a lot of cheese curds in Iowa. Folks don't realize we have like cheese curd factories here, um, like little family owned places that you go in and you can see them making it and sample the cheese curds. So I've had my share of cheese curds. These were not cheese curds. And then it was so far removed from Cajun culture that it wasn't really Cajun either. It didn't taste Good like Lord, no. It's like the Tex-Mex version happening to Cajun food. Yeah, I'm sure. We don't even know what a cheese not. curd is down here. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, they're so strange. And I'm, I'm, I've traveled. I know what they are. I know what they really are when they're in Wisconsin, for example. But yeah, we're. I think we're just more about bourbon here, which is, I think, better. Mostly better. Yes, Kentucky is always a pleasure to visit for that for that <laughs> yeah. reason. Love the bourbon. Yeah, it helps yeah. with our hospitable culture for sure. You feel welcome right away with them. And here wow. in Louisiana, we make it easy because you can actually drive through and get daiquiris and mixed drinks. Uh, you know, at, we have drive drive through daiquiri places, but if you need an old fashioned, they'll give you one of those too. Yeah, isn't isn't roadies a thing, or or is that the Missi- is, is that the Mississippi Delta? What roadies? I I think it's like when you're leaving a dinner party or something, they they give you a roadie, so you, you just like take one for the road or something. Yeah, well, totally I mean, irresponsible and a horrible yeah. idea. Yeah, but but we but, cut we cut the whole dinner part out. Vegas. You can just. <laughs> You can basically drive up to a drive-through window that's just selling daiquiris for in cars, and uh, and they'll give you a daiquiri. And uh, of course, now it's all taped up because we trust you not to drink it while you're driving. So, one thing I want to get into though before we close out, um, look, this whole COVID nineteen pandemic is going to be over eventually. Things will go back to some sort of normal, whatever that ends up looking like. But you know, we're going to return to industry events and. You know, one thing I we're going to eventually dig more into on our podcast, but I want to touch on now is I think a lot of folks do events wrong when they attend them and try to network and get value. And um, like I'm personally really passionate about this topic, but I've noticed that you've also you've gotten a lot of value out of um, leveraging events properly, networking well, using that to expand your business, meet people. Um, What is what has worked for you? Because what what I see happen a lot is like, all right a supplier sponsors an event. They're going to spend X amount of money and they're so rigidly focused on making business connections, getting meetings, driving results as quickly as possible that they come off as authentic and forced and they discount a lot of people. I, what's worked for me, you know, is like, I actually got this advice from a Tim Ferriss podcast about how he did South by Southwest to launch his whole career. And one of the lessons he said he learned, um, and I listened to this before I even got into this industry, was don't discount anyone. Like, go there with the intention of making a genuine human connection with somebody, whether or not there's a direct business interest with them. One, you never know when that's going to pay off in the end. But two, when when you have a personal connection with someone, like, they go to bat for you in, in ways that you would just never expect. Um yeah. And that's worked well for me, but like what's worked really well for you over the last couple of years? So, yeah, it's hard not to agree with that advice from, from Tim Ferriss, but about um, just having a real connection. Um, yes, the people. So if a brand is sponsoring an event, yes, you can expect to hear from them. You can um, almost undoubtedly expect that the information you hear is going to be biased you know, but not always. Um, so the best events that I've attended that I, I like to go back to are the ones where um, the, they're sponsored by, say, a specific brand, but they're conducted by a third party. And um, the intention is really just to get information 
and um, out there and get people talking and their real goals um, are, are to connect with people and hear what their challenges are and their real opinions, um, less about their own brand, um, but they're kind of getting outside of their brand. But the reason those events work for me um, in the ways that they, they do work, it's fine. It's realizing that, you know, the salespeople who are on the floor trying to make these calls, trying to get, um, trying to get appointments with you. They're just real people. They're real people. They have families that this is their job. They're hardly ever home. So just finding a point, a point to connect on, whether it's about their food or their brand or the thing that they're selling or not, it doesn't really matter. Um, eventually, yeah, you'll remember that you, um, if you need the product, you know, a person, but you know, the person, not because, um, they're selling, you know, they're a great salesperson, but because they're just a great person. Um, I love those events when I can talk to people who do the same job as me. Um, now I'm not a retailer, but when I was, um, it's so fascinating to be able to talk to people who are doing the same work that you're doing, but in a different part of the country. And um, there's a whole lot that, especially in convenience, that we can share back and forth that is is a non, um, it's not competitive information. Um, it's it's about how to about supply chain and about um, yeah maybe about pricing and margins. You may be in a, a small share group, which again just blows my mind that those exist. But um, what a strength! But tapping into the strengths. So if you find out that. Um, like I remember finding out from the company that I was working for that there was a shared group. And um, when I was going to this event, I was going to get to meet the people who do the same job as me in other States. Um, how valuable is that? You never get to do that in, in similar roles, but in other industries. So I found a huge amount of value just doing that. Um, but, you know, I mentioned that I moved back to my hometown from where I haven't lived in almost 20 years. And, um, sort of gone through uh, an existential crisis. <laughs> like, <laughs> what am I doing? Um, I had all these good intentions and good reasons, and, and I still do. Um, nothing about that's changed at all, but um, it's really forced me to have a different perspective when it comes to talking to people. Um, no longer do I come with a title. Um, nobody really cares mm. where I used to work or what my title used to be or what my next step was going to be in the role that I was in, um, which not everybody can do that or wants to do that. But the perspective that it's given me is, you know, wow, I have a lot to talk about that um, has nothing to do with the job that I have. Um, and just remembering that when you're, when you're on a plane uh, back uh, when the days come around again, where we can actually socialize and sit next to people and shake hands and hug um, those are important ways, I think, of, of connecting. Um, yeah, and just getting to know people, asking them about where they live, what their their habits are, their hobbies. I love those events. Um, I could talk all day about about why and what I've learned about myself as far as how that's come together and why it seems like a natural fit for me more than some other people. But um, I do really like those events, and it has everything to do with connection. Yeah, I. That's actually a really good point. It, it, it's, it's so easy to get caught up in maybe some of the business objectives of, of the events and you see people as a title and not a, not a, not the person behind it. And at least for me, I, I think 
the, the most value I've ever gotten out of these has been when you when you do get a chance to kind of go beyond the surface with someone and get to know them a little better. Sometimes that's only one or two people at an event. But yeah. you, you, you realize like years later, you're still talking to these people, you're emailing them halfway regularly. Um, and, you know, if you have to make a business case for it, oftentimes it kind of does. Um, I've had introductions made by folks like that to folks that I needed to talk to because it turns out they know someone that I need to, to know. And, and, uh, so they set that up or maybe they end up in a role where I need to talk to them two years down the road. But, um, I don't know, you just get so much more value when you really go in with the intention of making a personal connection with somebody instead of trying to collect a bunch of business cards and close some deals. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're in a, when you're a retailer and you have um, maybe a couple of events or one that you're able to attend and get away with it in a year because work doesn't stop and the emails don't stop and you miss meetings that other people are at um, in in, in able or in order for you to be able to attend this event. So you have to make a strong business case just to be able to leave town and, um, and close your office or, you know, not talk to the people you normally talk to. And um, you're working, especially in convenience, you're working with store level team members who may not get to even have an opportunity like that. And their personal development goals don't look like yours. And um, yeah, so it can be kind of awkward. So um, I think where where I get value out of those kinds of events as well, not just with networking, but um, attending the the classes attached to those events, like uh, at the NAC show, being able to go to any one of those um almost any of them, uh, where, where someone's speaking on a subject that you're interested in, um, that's in your field, they can be really relevant. Um, for those reasons, I like some of the food service shows that are specifically about food service because I'm learning other people's challenges around menu labeling and how are they doing staffing and exactly how do they set up their margins and their, their, is it a cost accounting or a retail accounting and um, even like corporate structure, learning a, a couple of brands that, that I've recently talked to, they they have a seat at the table with the other um, C-suite people. There is a chief food service officer or some some role like that. Um, I learned that by going to those kinds of events. Otherwise, I don't think I would know that. You know, so just learning, uh, just taking every opportunity to learn can help you come back with something uh, helpful to share with your organization and help pay for the the next time you want to go. Yeah, and I'm also curious when when you were on the retail side, did did you find that it was really easy just to get sort of siloed to where you don't get exposure to different ideas? Because I see there's a I'll give you an example. So <laughs> I know a category manager who hadn't been to some of the competitors in her market inside their stores for I think it was like two or three years. And I was really struck by that. I was like, you wouldn't want to see how they do their category management, but then you know, you think, okay, here's someone who has a family, they are working nine to five, 10 to six, whatever, they're tired at the end of the day, the absolute last thing they probably want to do is go drive around and visit stores. But it's so easy to get trapped in kind of your, your own area, and maybe not get that exposure to what's going on. Um, and other, you know, and other retailers. And then when you go to events, I, I, I think there's the risk that, um, rather than getting out and visiting some stores in the area or doing that, you go to the bar, you go to the pool, you hang out with friends that you don't get a chance to see except for these events. And then you don't get that exposure. So at the end of the day, um, you're kind of siloed 
And right. uh, I think that's a real concern for folks. I think it is. And I think it is in any position. Um, I used to think that it was really um, critical just to food um, and food innovation. So um, I, I love the term food innovation, but who's not in an innovation role of some kind? You know, maybe we're operations innovation or maybe we're marketing innovation. Um, but one really critical step um, is getting that other part of your brain to work and not just be in um, just uh, this mode that you don't even turn your brain off ever, um, but just allowing yourself to escape and get into another place. That's a really important part of being innovative is being creative. Um, You don't even realize at the time when you're listening to a a subject matter that's completely different from your norm that you needed it or that it, it actually brought insight to a part of your business that you wouldn't have considered otherwise hearing how other people do it, that uh, you sort of start to realize like we're all uh, on a similar path and maybe it looks different, but if you can allow yourself to jump from your track over to another one for a bit, uh, you come back just so refreshed uh, with different insight, different perspective into your own. And which is, you know, I think important to all roles uh, but when it comes to a role that your title has something to do with development or innovation, it's, it's extremely important. And I do think there are certain personality types that are drawn to those roles that um, have uh, the need for that. So you, there are certain personality types who, who love to sit in front of an Excel sheet, not talk to anybody yeah. and, and be there all day. And I can be like that a little bit too, but not, not forever. But some people really want to do that forever. And that's great. Um, but for the people who are in different kinds of roles where you, you need to be really dynamic in your thinking or you cover a lot of ground, um, that's a great excuse for those networking opportunities. And besides your um, you know, sales goals that you're trying to meet and, and growth goals, you're, you have some sort of HR uh, personal growth goals. Those are great ways to, to get um, yourself to those kinds of events I found is to, you know, pencil them on there. This is, this is great for me because I grow in perspective or it challenges me to think in a new way. Those kinds of reasons um, are helpful to get yourself into, get invited to those. By the way, a lot of them are covered. Um, so they'll yeah. pay your expenses. They'll pay for $500 of travel fees and, and all your registration is included. So it's almost free to go as long as you can keep up with your normal work. Yeah. I would always encourage retailers, like always just, just ask if the, you know, what the event is going to do if you're interested in going to it, because like, let's just be brutally honest. A lot of these events need retailers to function mm-hmm. so they can sell sponsorships to suppliers. Like it's just right. how the business model works and that's okay. But the point is, like, they may be willing to help you get there if maybe you're from a smaller retailer and, you know, maybe you guys don't have a big events budget that year or whatever. You never know. It, do- it doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, absolutely. And most of the time they have at least one or two spots mm-hmm. uh, ready to cover. As long as you show up, they're happy to have you. Yeah. And especially if you can get on a panel or something, then they might be willing to do a little bit more. Um, but that's fun because you're going to get to know the other panelists uh, in advance and you might make some good connections with folks who do the same job uh, that you can kind of lean on down down the road just for advice or ideas. 
Yeah. And, you know, there are different approaches to those sort of events. It's totally acceptable to go and be more of a fly on the wall. You don't necessarily have to um, share. You shouldn't share your calendar and every detail of your plan for the next little while. Um, that's not the, the point of those types of mm-hmm. events. So if you need to be more quiet and that's your personality and that's your, or your directive from your, from the top down, they said, you can go, you can't talk, you can't mention anything. Just take the opportunity to go anyway and, and talk about, you know, people's kids and sports and whatever it is that they want to talk about. Like we're talking about making real connections. You can do that outside of your um, strict business speak. So there's opportunity for everyone. So as so as we start ending this out, one thing I'm kind of curious for your thought on is what you think the new normal might, might look like when this is all said and done. I I know Al and I were talking about this this morning just because um, we had a separate conversation about just why it's such a mistake for certain businesses to rather than trying to be different, they try to be more efficiently like their competition and uh, see if. You know, they can be better by their competition by being exactly like them. And I, I guess I'm just thinking, like, I know this is a busy time, but it's also a great time to reflect and think, what can we do to be different and stand out and hit the ground running? Um, how do you think things are going to change when this is all done? So as far as um, procedures and kind of standard operating, uh, I think you'll see a, a, a big turn toward cleanliness, a big turn, turn toward safety and sanitation. Um but even more efficiency, um, as you have the chance to go back and review procedures and um, procedures as far as executing at store level and executing the recipes that you have on hand, sure. But um, our conversation about being able to um, expand your brain and, and think in different terms, um, I think you just have to build it into your normal schedule as well. Um, thinking about the worst thing that could ever happen, like a global pandemic and everyone at your, in your company being unable to work or being sick, that is really horrible to have to think about. But it turns out we have to, if we're going to be responsible, think about it. I think you have to look at the other hand as well and think how innovative and fun and exciting can we make this role? It does not have to be, um, following a checklist in a really bland way it can be um, and it should be a fun place to work you there's nothing um, that I'm aware of that says we can't speak to each other when you're in the same um, setting the same store you can be six feet away but you can talk you can talk with a mask on even Um, so don't forget to not only think about the absolute worst but the absolute best that can happen and something I mentioned, I meant, I meant to mention earlier um, when you're looking at procedures and we talked about um, how do you make your, your perfect product that you make in one store, um, scale it without having to, um, you know, which parts are critical. It made me think about um, CCPs or critical control points when you create a plan like a, a HACCP plan, a hazard analysis critical control plan. So Thinking from start to finish, um, when a product comes into your back door and then it exits the door with your customer, what are all of the critical steps that you take in to make sure that it is um, not only safe, but if we think about taking CCPs and turning them into like, what are the critical control points of our brand? Um, what made us during this coronavirus outbreak um, a place that people kept coming to? 
what can we maintain with that? Was it really important that we opened the doors for our guests? Should that just now be a brand new role that we just always have? There's somebody opening the door. There's and that person stocks the shelves when their doors aren't needing to be opened. Uh, what is it? Is it um, keeping the delivery options? Is it keeping the um, we'll bring um, products out to your pump to the pump so you don't have to come into the store? What is it that we're going to maintain that made us a brand that was trusted? I like to think in terms of like, what are the critical ones? We might've done a hundred million things, but what were the critical pieces that we want to write now and have like become part of our new DNA? That's, that's a really good point because, you know, almost in a similar sense, I was thinking about how locally here we've adjusted. So restaurants can uh, do kind of to go mix drinks, you know, if you want to order for pickup or something. And obviously that's kind of a lifeline being thrown to the restaurants to help them stay in, but and it'll, I'm sure it'll go away. But there are some things that are being done now that are different that you can keep doing. And mm-hmm. maybe maybe you should. Um, right. If people were coming to, to your pumps uh, because they saw that you were wiping them down once an hour, I mean, uh, you think to a month or two ago, did you feel great about touching the handle of a pump to start with? No, yeah. you would never touch those and, and eat something with your bare hands without washing them. Um, but but and you probably never should. But uh, on the other hand, you don't feel completely helpless. You see that there's a plan in place that um, those are being wiped down. Uh, you feel better about it. And I think that's that's really important. What are we doing right now that are making people feel better? Um, because you can believe that when every place else opens up, they're going to be taking on many of the same best practices. So yeah, what parts of, of your business do you want to hang on to and elevate um, that will continue to be help you be the place that people go when they when they when they're not um in a pandemic uh mindset (laughs) just in your norm mindset keep thinking about what will the customer's expectation be when this is all over i mean how long is this going to last with them i remember 9-11 very well uh there was just this uh, there was a different sense after 9-11 and for long after but all that kind of went away, you know, the, the patriotism that time kind of kind of dampened down. And so I'm wondering, uh, and, and the fear dampened down. Uh, so I'm wondering after this is over, uh, if this is going to stick with customers, or are they going to, to have that expectation of, oh, I want this clean, I want that clean, or are they going to forget about it in a year because uh, there's a new Star Wars movie or, uh, you know, uh, there's a new streaming channel. Or I know one of the things in my business, I work in television, and the attention span of the viewer is the most precious commodity in our business. And I've seen this attention span dwindle over the years. And so I'm wondering when this is over, uh, is that going to figure into, or are they going to move to something else or will they still, you know, be wiping things down, hand sanitizers? I mean, a few months ago, we didn't spray our steering wheel and we didn't spray our shift nozzle in the car. Now we do, you know, uh, we spray our iPhones now, you know, we didn't do that before. So I'm wondering if all this is going to hang around. I, I wonder if there's, is there any way to predict that, Jessica? I think, uh, no, there's really no way to predict it. But I don't think um, that it's all going to go away just because you're distracted. Um, I think we're going to always want uh, some level of assurance that our food is safe, that the people who um, we exchange food with um, or even money, that they're washing their hands. That's always been our rule. I don't think we're going to get less 
interested in it. But I think the the bar has been raised mm. and the level, the new level set for our expectations is higher than it used to be. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we pro- probably won't see, my prediction is we probably won't see people cleaning pumps er- at every hour. Hopefully won't have to see people taking temperatures of their employees before they come in. Um, hopefully won't have to have so much sick leave because people are so desperately sick and and there you know there are a lot of bad memories attached to this time for people as well mm-hmm. um so not only is it just uh just maybe people are over it as far as reading about it or, or listening to it but i don't i don't think that that's necessarily because they are um uninterested in in the health and safety of people and knowing what's going on it's just a uh, that they're ready at some point we'll all be ready to move on and think about something else. But I do think that um, cleanliness is always going to be there. Yeah. I mean, I I would hope cleanliness has always been there when it came to food, but (laughs) you know what I'm going to look for? I'm going to look to see how long those shields stay up at the uh, registers. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that's something, it's it's there now. I mean, they're at the shop rights, they're at a lot of uh, convenience stores, they're at Walmart. So six months after this is over, I think if those things are still up, that's going to tell us something. If they take them down, but I mean, they're there. It's going to cost them extra money to take them down. But if they decide to leave them up for safety, that's, I think that's going to be well, interesting. Now, they could just go the route of uh, <laughs> some of the stores that have been doing them for years. I remember going to a subway in Detroit that had plexiglass surrounding the entire counter. I had to get my sandwich through. It looked like a little lazy Susan that was, uh, you know, compartmentalized it. That's cutting edge right (laughs) now. Basically because the place gets robbed, but that's uh, a different safety concern. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I went in with a friend when we were in Detroit and I was like, you know, maybe this is a sign that we should watch our back around this particular neighborhood we've wandered into here. Uh, But (laughs) I mean, hey, jokes on jokes on everyone else because they were prepared for this. Uh, Boy, were they? they they've had <laughs> the face shields up for years. But no, you bring up a good point though because it's kind of like public policy. Everyone knows it's harder to repeal legislation once you've passed it. It's like once you've done it, getting rid of it's a little trickier. Um, I kind of have to wonder though some of the temporary raises that are coming out, some of the new policies that are being put in place at the store level, some people may be really upset if some of these are pulled back. So I, I don't know what the answer is on that, but uh, I think some, some things are going to end up staying. And um, I don't know, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out because look, this could go on for two more months and then, all right, we repeal a $3 an hour raise. It was kind of a hazard pay type thing, whatever. But if someone starts getting used to that for 10 months, Mm-hmm. Now they now that starts to become normal for them and they're budgeting based around that. That might that might cause problems if you try to remove that. So yeah. I don't know. It's just something to keep in mind. But you know, so as we end out here, we always like to ask, um, you know, do you have any books, podcasts, or articles that you found really interesting that 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 you would try to recommend to somebody? So I'm constantly listening to um, to what industry articles have to say, uh, industry publications like CSP, um, all the publications that come from Winsight, from NACS, and from Convenience Store News. Um, so just related specifically to the industry, um, I love to see what's happening over in the restaurant world and in the grocery world. And um, so if you're strictly in convenience and you haven't really branched out over into other 
places. Um, now is a great time to do it because you'll get the inside scoop on how they're getting things done um, as far as in a crisis. And then you'll, you'll get to watch things come back um, as far as marketing and what they're advertising and how they're talking about their, their brands and their food that might be insightful to you. So um, I like, uh, I like the restaurant publications as well as the grocery ones that you can find out there. Um, on a personal level, I've been so into uh, learning about my Enneagram number um, yes. and what that personality profile looks like. I've always liked personality tests, but this one in particular, it's apparently been around for thousands uh, or hundreds of years, if not a thousand years. Um, it called- it's not new. What's it called again? Enneagram. Enneagram. Um, so there are nine different buckets that um, people typically fall into. And it's really more about how you cope with the world and how you um, how you view things. It's kind of the lens through which you view the world and um, could explain some of your hidden motivations and your, your reasons for doing things, um, which going back to the reason um, I left everything that I knew um, that I've been working for for years and moved back home. So that brought all kinds of things up for me to work through and kind of why, why am I doing this? What is motivating me exactly? Why, why is it that I am how, how I am? Um, but I think it's um, as any, much as anything, it's a helpful tool to uh, work together with your family, with your team. Um, I like that one as a, just as a tool. And uh, the, the podcast that I listen to quite a bit is called Typology. It's uh, the host is Ian Morgan Cron, and he's written a book or two, many of them actually about the Enneagram and how, how it comes together with other people. Um, so that one I think has been, been super interesting to me, anything with Enneagram, but I'm trying not to go too into it and trying to uh, just use it more as a background tool than like, I'm not trying to type people as a, personality personality tests can be a great exercise though i mean i've i've done those you know with groups that i work with and it, it's just helps you to empathize with people i think a mm-hmm. little bit more i mean once you just get a at least a rougher idea of just how their motivations work and how they see the world um it just makes it so much easier to interact with them and and in yeah. the more extreme cases not take offense at things that you might push back on normally. Um, you know, I, I know we, we were talking about this the other day, but especially if you work with any engineers, um, you may be a little irritated when you're in a conference with someone and they literally don't talk for an hour, or you may think, what's this person's problem? Why are they rude? Oh, they're probably not being rude at all. They just don't talk a lot and that's okay. Some, some people are wired that way. Um, there's nothing yeah, wrong with that. It's true. Um, I learned uh, a while back through the Myers-Briggs test that I am 100% opposite of every engineer that I worked with. The exact opposite. Um, interestingly, uh, my husband and I both took this Enneagram test and our first assumption was that we were just very different, but complementary. turns out we're exactly the same number. <laughs> exactly the same number. And then we started reading about um, how do you our type work together in a relationship. And it was like someone had been watching us and writing down how we interact. It was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it's just brought some more context and more voice to um, how, how we get things done. And um, for me personally has explained some of the motivation to be creative as well as um, very 
detailed and and task focused. So I think learning some of the strengths and some of the underlying motivations of your personality um, always are going to apply directly to what you're doing. And if it's your job that you want to apply it to, you can definitely do that. If it's your personal life, you can apply it to that too. Just kind of what you're looking for. But to me, that's been a big help. Yeah. Al, we're going to have to take a couple of those and compare our scores. I know. I know. I, know. I was thinking about that. I was writing all this down. <laughs> yeah, we, I think we totally need to do that. I think we should. I think we should. That'd be uh, fun. We need to get to the bottom. Why do we love gas stations so much? What's the deal? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, honestly, though, and I think this point was brought up earlier, but I think folks just forget like how much fun retail can be. And I, I would hope they don't lose sight of that with this. Um, fuel, fuel and convenience occupies a really unique space in our society. Um, it has a little bit more flexibility, I think, to be fun, to not be stuffy, to it's, it's, it's a place that serves everyone in a way that others don't. I mean, when you look at, oh, especially fashion retail, um, when you look at even, even grocery stores can be so highly segmented on income. Um, I mean, you have a different customer at Whole Foods and you do at Dollar General, let's be honest. Um, yeah. Convenience stores, though, they really, truly do serve everybody. And you can have fun with that. You can be a fun place that everyone enjoys going. It's, it's, I don't know, it's a fun industry. So, which kind of brings us to the last thing we always like to ask all of our guests, like, for, for someone new to this industry, what, what sort of advice would, would you recommend? I mean, this could be anyone from a new someone trying to start a new chain to someone just getting their first job out of college. But what would what would your your advice be? Um, I would say, I would say assume that most people have uh, your best interests in mind. Um, don't view every single person that you're uh, working with and um, even competing with necessarily as your competitor. I have been so pleasantly surprised with the brotherhood and fraternity that convenience has to offer and share it is like a family reunion to go to Nax, and I was only in convenience for a few years. Not of the, I spent ten years in restaurants. Um, maybe it's because people move around, or um, I don't know. Many of the same suppliers that I worked with there over in convenience, but um, it's a small world. It truly is a small world. So um, just bank on the connections that you make being um, long term and like uh, your, your new long lost family members. Um, and if I think treating people in those ways will get you a, a long way. Um, as far as having resources out there, you can call people and ask them their opinions, their questions, um, ask the same questions. Um, it's, it's a small enough world that it turns out, you know, we're all facing some similar challenges in, in a good way and in a bad way. Um, over the years that some of those don't change a whole lot. And it's just good to, to know that up front. Um, it's, it, there are some things that of course you'll hold close to your best, um, the cards that you have, uh, as far as your next play, your next marketing promotion, uh, what's coming down the road for your, your brand. Not that you would want to, um, share all of that with your competition, but definitely, um, just know that, everybody's got something up their sleeve like that and, and just have fun common ground wherever you can find it. 
Well, I think that's a good point to end on. And uh, I know we all have some busy Saturdays ahead of us, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. We're all sheltered. Ah, maybe not. Well, we're still not sheltered in place. We're one of the few states that, for some reason, is not doing that. I have no idea why, but that's another topic for another day. So, Jessica, thank you so much for taking time out of your day, though, to join us on the podcast. This was, oh, this Jessica, was fun. Oh, it's great to talk thank to you. You're, you're wonderful. We appreciate you so much. You guys, you're wonderful. It was really, it's such an honor to be on a podcast. Who would have ever thought? Um, I, I remember meeting you guys or seeing you for the first time online. If you're, uh,